you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we will read the first five verses. Of Romans chapter 5. Again, reading in verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. So as we uh, jump into this text this morning, it's been a while since we've been in Romans, um, very, very long while, so let's Go back and think about a little bit about the context of, of what comes before Romans chapter 5. Uh, you remember for really the last two chapters, Paul's began to unpack really um, the concept of justification, what it means uh, to be justified by faith. And uh, he's gone through and, and established many different things. We started in chapter 1 talking about the gospel, the obedience of faith, and that um, it is... Uh, Paul is, is not ashamed of the gospel, and he says it's the power of God into salvation. And he also said that uh, in that, part of that is it's the righteousness of God. Uh, so then he began to show us what it meant um, in verse 18 about the wrath of God against all unrighteousness. So there's righteousness um, that is God's righteousness, and then with man there is unrighteousness. Spent the whole rest of chapter 1 talking about that. Uh, then he went into what's the difference between Jew and Greek? Uh, does that profit? Of course, the answer to that was no. Well, what about works? What about things that we do? No, that's not it. Well, what about circumcision, uncircumcision? No, that's not it. Uh, and then um, spent chapter 4 really zeroing in on justification by faith. So that's kind of the history of where we've been through so far in Romans very quickly. Uh, but now having established that glorious truth of justification by faith and, and fully disproving any other model of how we might be justified before God by works of the flesh or any other thing, the Apostle Paul will now begin to unpack some of the great effects and blessings of the grace of God by which we have been saved. So today, as we go through this text, and, and don't let this scare you, one of them, uh, one of these six points is, gonna, is really not one. I just have to mention it uh, because it's going to be covered in another. So really, there's more like five, but uh, some of them will be very quick. Uh, some of these we could take uh, two or three Sundays and unpack, uh, but we're not going to do that. Uh, so even though it sounds like a lot, it really is just dividing out this text, the first five verses of chapter 5. So the first thing is peace with God in verse 1. Secondly, access to God in verse 2. Also in verse 2, uh, the hope of glory. What does Paul mean by that? Uh, and then the fourth thing is glory in tribulations. The fifth thing is patience, experience, and hope. And then the last thing we'll talk about is the love of God through the Spirit. Uh, the love of God through the Spirit. Now, if you didn't get all those down, that's okay. We're going to go through those one at a time. I want to kind of give you the outline of the text uh, before we dive in. So let's go back and read verse 1 again of, of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just reading that statement, I hope that there's something that wells up inside of you, that through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Um, that is really boiling down to a fine point, the message of the gospel, that it is through Jesus. The only way you can have peace with God is through Jesus Christ. 
So if we truly understand, and, and let me say this before I even start, there's been a lot of tough messages. There's been a lot that Paul has talked about that's been real difficult. That's not the case this morning. So even as I say things like I'm about to say about the difficult position we're in before God, know that there's a lot of good news in this message this morning because we're going to begin to talk about now the blessings and all the wonderful things that come to us because we are justified by faith. So, But, but, it, but nonetheless, if we truly understand the position that we are in by nature, as creatures that are totally depraved, dead in trespasses and sins. You know, remember back to Romans chapter 3 when Paul talked about all of that. He proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are totally depraved. We are dead in trespasses and in sins. We're born with a sin nature, fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Not just we're born with a sin nature, but we fulfill the lusts of the flesh in our lives. We are rebels against God, creatures that justly deserve the wrath of God. In our natural state, apart from the grace of God, we, when we're talking about justification, we need to remember that justice for us in our natural condition would be the wrath of God. We justly deserve the wrath of God. Uh, and then we might begin to approach the amazing, awesome, really exciting statement that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we hear the word therefore in the scripture, you've heard this probably a hundred times from different ministers. What do you always do when you see therefore? You go back and you see what it's there for. So it's going to be referring back to something uh, from the prior, prior text. So when he says therefore, being justified by faith, he's pointing us backwards. He's pointing to us uh, back to, uh, he's pointing us back to what comes before. So all the difficult ground that we've covered in, in Romans 3 and 4, uh, the great truth of justification by faith, which is, is um, rightly could be called a, a very difficult doctrine to understand. And the, the heritage, the, what we talked about, that our heritage, whether we're Jew or Gentile, no matter what family you come from, your works of the law, any good works that you might think that you could produce, um, outward signs like circumcision and uncircumcision, no other thing can justify anyone, is now summed up in this great statement, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the debt that we had accrued has been paid, and the righteousness that we lacked has been provided for us through Christ. All the legal work has been completed, and all of this has been applied to us individually by the Holy Spirit. And because of all of those things, that's only because of all of those things can you say that you have peace with God. So it's a very simple, what I'm trying to get across to you is it's a very simple statement. It's something that it just kind of rolls off the tongue, right? We have peace with God. Think of all the things that must happen for us to have peace with God. All of those things that I just listed, all of the, the work that had to be done, the righteousness that had to be provided, and all of that applied to us by the Holy Spirit, all of that work so that we can say that we have peace with God. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you cannot say that you do have peace with God. Okay, There is no comfort that I can give you today. If you deny who Jesus Christ is and you do not believe the gospel, then I have no comfort for you today. And you cannot claim this message that you have peace with God today. It is through our Lord Jesus Christ that we have peace with God. So we think back to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness so we said we know that that the condition of man naturally paul has clearly established that that the condition of man naturally uh, in his natural state is that we have incurred the wrath of god we are rebels against god he says that the wrath of god will be revealed upon those who are in ungodliness and unrighteousness and who hold the truth in unrighteousness John 3.36, it says it this way, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And then listen to this statement, But the wrath of God abideth on him. Is that a place you would want to be? 
Think about the creator of the universe, an omnipotent being who knows no equal. That's not the person that you want their wrath on you, right? You would not want their wrath. And he says that that wrath abides on you. He that believeth on the Son hath life. But if you don't believe on the Son, you shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. So the wrath of God has been turned away from the believer. So that's, you can also take that from both of those texts. The wrath of God has been turned away from the believer because of the blood of Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. And the Holy Spirit has applied that great redemption to the believer through regeneration and conversion. If you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God. If you have rejected the good news of the gospel, then there is nothing that I can tell you. Uh, there's no evidence that I can point to that you have been reconciled to God and you have peace with him. There, there is no message for that in Paul's writing. So this, this peace is, according to John Gill, better experienced than expressed. I love the way he said that. This truth is better experienced than expressed. So what he means by that, it's a real easy to, thing to say, we have peace with God. That's, that's, that's a, it just kind of rolls off the tongue, like I said. It's very easy to say, but it's better experienced than expressed. For those of you who are believers here today, do you remember when God first revealed to you that you were a sinner and you were lost and that that was your condition before a holy God? Do you remember when that happened? And then at some point after that, um, usually it happens uh, pretty simultaneously, but uh, I don't think it has to in every case, but after that was revealed to you that you're a sinner and you, re you realized your place before him, do you remember the feeling, that flood of relief and of joy and of thanksgiving and of peace that followed when the sweet message of the gospel came that said, you can have peace with God. You who are a rebel, who now it's been revealed to you how lost that you are, there's an answer for that, and the answer is in Jesus Christ. Well, that's the gospel. And so we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That message that you heard, that, that peace that followed, the message of redemption and forgiveness for sins through the finished work of Jesus Christ, that is a peace that passes understanding, uh, Paul would say in other places. So, so don't let this world, practically, how does, how does that affect us practically? Well, that's a lot of true doctrine in, in all of those statements, and, and we rejoice in it, but practically it can affect us as well. So the truth is, when we read what Paul says here, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that's something that actually will affect your day-to-day -day walk. Don't let this world or the attempts of Satan or his messengers rob you of peace that is yours in Jesus Christ. Because he's going to do this. His messengers are going to do this. The world is going to do this to you. They're going to constantly try to remind you. Satan's going to try to remind you about all the remainders of sin that are left in you, how often you fall and backslide and, and turn to the left and to the right. When that happens, turn over to Romans chapter 5 and read verse 1. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first, the first point here that Paul jumps right into is that we have peace with God. And this is one of the ones that I told you we could preach this for two or three weeks in a row and not, not scratch the surface. But because of all the work that we've done before in going through Romans, if I was preaching this text in isolation, I probably wouldn't want to jump, jump over it so quickly. But uh, because of that, we're going to move on to verse 2. Verse 2 says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So in addition to peace with God, number 2, we have access to God. Verse 2. We have access to God. We have access to the grace of God through Christ Jesus. So John Gill on this section, he, um, he takes this to mean uh, that really he just kind of focuses in on this is our access to God through prayer. And I don't think that's wrong. Um, it's not wrong. Uh, but I don't believe it's the complete meaning 
that the Holy Spirit intended through the Apostle Paul when he recorded these, these words for us. Uh, yes, we do have access now to God through prayer. Uh, we spent some time this morning doing that, and uh, you heard different people who prayed this morning talk about what a blessing it is that we have that access. So, so that's not wrong. Um, however, it is true that because of the finished work of Christ, um, we can now come to God as a child to a father. Uh, because our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can approach the king of the whole universe. Do you think that's an advantage <laughs> to someone who's trying to live in a sin-cursed earth? We can approach the creator of all of those things and expect that the golden scepter will be held out to us as those who are the redeemed and the chosen who stand in the grace of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Just So as I'm saying that it may not be the whole picture, it is an amazing thing that we have access to God and that, and that because of the work of Christ, because of his righteousness clothing us and our sins being paid for, Christ, we are seen through Jesus Christ. The Father sees us through the blood of Christ. Because of that, we can go into the presence of a holy God. What an amazing thing. Now, some of you may have noticed in, in what I um, just said, there was a reference to a golden scepter being held out. That's a story from the Old Testament. Maybe, maybe your mind's already gone there. Maybe when I said that, you thought, well, I wonder if he's talking about the story of Esther in the Old Testament. Well, I was. That was a reference to the story of Esther. Do you remember uh, that part of the story of Esther? She was um, rightfully very nervous that she was about to go in before the king. And if you remember, the laws in that day said that if you came into the inner chamber, that's what it was called, the inner chamber, you came into the king's inner chamber and you were not called, you were not expected, then the king would either withhold or he would hold out the golden scepter. If he held out the golden scepter, then you lived and you could go ahead and say whatever you needed to say to the king. If he did not, then you were put to death. So when, when Esther went in, she was rightfully nervous to go before the king having not been called. Because according to the law, if the king did not hold out the golden scepter, that person would be put to death. So venturing into that inner chamber where the king resided and, and did his business was literally taking your life and placing it in the hands of the king. If he showed you favor and he held it out, you would live. If he did not show you favor and withheld the scepter, then you would be put to death. And, and I believe there's so many things we can take from this first. If you're a child of God, you are called. That's one thing. You're called to the king. Uh, but secondly, um, I, I believe this is part of what, um, what Paul is teaching us here when he says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. I believe that's a great description in Esther of our own circumstance in coming before the Lord. Apart from the grace of God... Um, uh, and, and apart from uh, providing sacrifice for all of our transgressions and apart from God providing us with a robe of righteousness that is fit to wear in the presence of a king, we would have no standing. There would be no hope for us to find favor with the king. It would be a mission of death. So if you tried to enter into that inner chamber of your own merit, with your own clothing, uh, in your own way, with your own standing, it's an immediate death sentence. You're not going to find favor with the king. It's actually quite the contrary. We'd be certainly, instantly, and immediately sentenced to death. So we think of this approach as we approach the Lord in prayer. Uh, for one thing, I think that ought to really um, give us reverence about the way we approach God in prayer. Prayer is a serious thing. You know, when, when Esther was thinking about this whole concept, she says, I'm going into the inner chamber. I'm going before the king. There was a seriousness to it, right? There was something that, that uh, she didn't take that lightly. Uh, her life was on the line in going in before this, this king. Well, we ought to take it seriously when we go before the king as well. So we think of this as we approach the Lord in prayer. As John Gill stated, we have access to the throne of grace. How amazing. How often do we forget this powerful spiritual weapon granted to us, as Brother Robert talked about this morning? You know, he said sometimes we forget. Isn't that amazing how that we have this great standing and advantage? We stand in grace. We are called into the inner chamber. We have 
we have a clothing and a righteousness and a standing with God because of Jesus Christ that we can go in confidently to the throne of grace. And yet, with that, so many times we stand in the outer courts and try to figure out our own problems instead of just going into the king and unloading our burden before him. Uh, what a terrible thing that that is that we would often forget this powerful spiritual weapon that's been granted to us and take lightly the privilege uh, and the serious nature of approaching the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So what a reminder also to approach him with reverence and yet what an amazing thought that we can come with confidence and we can come boldly to the throne of grace. But I want to go back to that image one more time of the story of Esther and point out that kind of how I think, and I've kind of already alluded to it a little bit, how I think that this passage is more than just about approaching God in prayer. What is it that Paul says in verse 2 that we have access to? If you actually look at the text, it's not God that he says we have access to. In a roundabout way it is. But really what he says plainly, let's go back and read it, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So what he's actually saying that we have access to is grace and that we stand in this grace. There is um, a standing that we have because of the work of of Jesus Christ. Those who are justified by faith are in a state of grace. Esther, you remember, was nervous, we said, about going into that inner chamber because it could cost her her life, and there was uncertainty about if the king would show favor or not. Well, here's the amazing message of, of Romans 5 2. We can approach and we have access to the king, and we can be certain of acceptance and standing before him because of our union to Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? There has to be, there's no anxiety. Uh, we have standing with God. We have, uh, and, and I keep using that word standing. It, it, you know, maybe you've watched a movie about the law if you don't know a lot about it. But one of, the, one of the burdens that you have to have when you come and you bring a case or you come in before a judge is you have to have standing. You have to have an interest. You have to have uh, the ability to come and to make that argument. Well, we, we have... Um, through Jesus Christ, we have been given and we have been granted standing and we stand in the state of grace so that we can approach unto a holy God. We stand in the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The text literally says, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. So by faith, the Spirit of God unites us to Christ so that his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. God laid my iniquities on him and his righteousness on me. He took my sin uh, that I did perform and placed it on Christ who did not perform any sin, who never sinned. He took his righteousness and though I have none, he imputed his righteousness to me. Therefore, because of all of that, because of his imputed righteousness, because my sins have been paid, our access, our standing, how God sees us through Christ adds to our peace a confidence that we're in a state of grace and can approach our Father with confidence in the flesh. Uh, our, our own righteousness, our, our unworthiness, all, all of those things that would hinder us have been taken away and we can have confidence through Christ, by faith, with our standing in grace. What an amazing thing that is. That's an amazing thing. So not only do you have peace, but you also have standing with God because you've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, moving on to verse 3. All of these we could camp out. and I, I'm, I feel guilty moving on each time, but we're going to move on each time. In, in verse 3, let's read what he says. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So this third effect and blessing uh, that is received as the results of justification by faith, um, what Gill called a cheerful hope of eternal glory. Uh, so in addition to peace 
and access to grace. Actually, I, I'm, I'm, I skipped over something. I need to go back. I need to actually go back to the end of verse 2. I read the wrong part of the verse. So the hope of glory, let's go back to the end of, of verse 2. I wrote it down wrong. And rejoice, I didn't finish that verse. We don't want to skip anything in this. So I'll go back and read all of verse 2, and we're going to get that last phrase in verse 2. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So he adds to what we just talked about, about standing and about this uh, access that we have to the grace wherein we stand. He adds to that this phrase on the end, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this third effect and blessing that is received by the results of justification and faith is called, a, by John Gill, a cheerful hope of eternal glory. This joy comes from our assurance of the completion of the work that is now begun in us, our glorification, the eradication of all the remainders of sin in the old man. One day, because we have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and clothed in his righteousness, one day we will be with him face to face. We have hope of that through Jesus Christ. We will no longer struggle with sin and the effects of sin that plague this sin-cursed world in which we live. So uh, this is the one that I told you we're not going to cover as we're going through, but I wanted to point out in the text uh, where it was so that as you're reading this you'll understand because we're actually going to come back to this in the end. Paul's going to build, um, build through verses 3, 4, and 5, and he's going to come back to our hope. Uh, you'll see that as you read down in verse 5. He says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. So we're going to come back to this when Paul comes back to it a little bit later. But just so you know, when he says this, in this particular part of it, when he says, in hope of the glory of God, he's not talking about the glory of God proper. He's talking about the glory that we're going to receive that is the glory of God in our glorification. That's what's under consideration. And like we said, we're going to come back to that a little bit later. So now we're going to move into verse 3. Did not want to skip over that. Now we want to move on to verse 3. And our fourth uh, thing that is a blessing and a, an effect of this justification by faith is glory in tribulations. Glory in tribulations in verse 3. And not only so, but we have glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So he says we have this uh, peace, we have this access, we have this hope of glory, and then you can add to that, he says, and not only so, not as if that's not enough, <coughs> it's kind of the way I read that, He's, he says, as if I've already not said enough, there's even more, and isn't it that way so many times when we start talking about the blessings of God, he says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, so what does that mean for the Christian, for the believer? Before that eternal day, before the glory that we talked about, see, that's a future. He talks about the hope of glory, and we said that is a future that we look forward to, our glorification. A little bit of the bad news, I guess, is that that doesn't come immediately for the believer. It doesn't come immediately. That's something that we look forward to and hope. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, all your trials and tribulations don't come to an immediate end. But the good news in that is, he says here, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also because we know some things about them. Okay, that's really what he's saying here. You can glory in, even in your tribulations in this life because we know as believers what's going on in that situation. We know, number one, we know the end, and number two, we know a lot about what's going on as we go through these tribulations in these lives. That's kind of sum, summarizing what's going to happen now between verses 3 and verse 5. He's going to tell us these things that we know about glory in tribulation. So when Paul says, uh, or Paul's answer is, uh, how do we understand and respond to these tribulations? He says, how, you know, how could he say that we glory in tribulations? And his answer is, is that they have a gracious and purposeful place in the Christian life, and we should therefore glory in them because we know their purpose. That's how we can glory in something that at the moment 
is not pleasant. So when Paul says in Romans 3, and not only this, that is not only do we glory or rejoice in, in all of these other things, but we also glory or rejoice. You could, you could put the word rejoice in there. You could plug that in. Uh, if you go back to the, to the original language there, that word would fit well. Rejoice in our tribulations. When he says this, he's not speaking as a spectator, but as a fellow sufferer. So Paul has experience in this concept of glorying in tribulations. <laughs> Probably has a PhD in glorying in tribulations. If you read about the life of the Apostle Paul, his sufferings were very long, very hard. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said that Jesus Christ has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. That boast, that same word, we glory in tribulations here. In Romans 3, he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that he most gladly or he boasts or he glories, it's the same word used over his weaknesses. Paul practiced what he preaches. And he means by weaknesses in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he shows us in the next verse what he means by that. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So the whole array of distresses and weaknesses is really what's under consideration when we look at our text and it says the word tribulations. That means a lot of different things. So it could mean weakness, sickness, um, all of these different things, difficulties, persecutions, insults, distresses, uh, all the, the, the negative parts of life really could kind of be summed up into that word um, that we read where it says tribulations. Paul says he glories in them instead of murmuring and complaining about them. So these are, Paul would also teach us in other places, and, and even in this text, these things are normal for the Christian. This is not an abnormal thing. It's not, it's not abnormal for a Christian to have tribulation in this life. In Acts 14, 22, we read, through many tribulations we enter into the kingdom of God. So we glory in tribulation. But now, having said all of that, is it still a little bit astonishing when you read that just at face value, that we're to glory in tribulations? Um, it it kind of is, it's, it's, but it's what we are called to do. And, and so what we want to look at now is how can that be? How can we unpack this in a way that makes sense of our glorying in our tribulations, in all of those different areas of our life, those disappointments, the things that don't go our way, the opposition that we have? from Satan and from his messengers and from the world itself. So this is God's, um, God's school for us. It is our, uh, it's our trial. It is uh, where our faith is increased and, 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 and hardened and, and made to be uh, more of the forefront in our life, as, as Brother Robert was talking about this morning. So the power to rejoice and glory in tribulation comes from this grace that we stand in that we've been talking about earlier in the passage. Now, here's an illustration from 2 Corinthians 8. Let's turn there. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. That's kind of some big language, but really you can notice the key there is that in the beginning it says it's the grace of God that's bestowed on them, that was given to them, and that produced in them a joy, a rejoicing in the midst of a great affliction. And that, that joy in affliction overflowed in love. So they're going through a great affliction, and yet they're still rejoicing, and they're able to bless others even while they're going through a great affliction. So it's a great picture of exactly what Paul is talking about uh, back in our text in Romans chapter 5 is, is this uh, situation here uh, in this church. 
So how are we doing today when things go bad for us? When you are in the midst of trials, tribulations, difficulties, uh, things may not go your way, uh, how then do we have this kind of joy? How can we glory in these things? That's what we're going to begin to unpack as we go through it, as we go through the rest of this text. So grace is the key. Uh, we stand in this grace. Everything that's come before, from verse 2 especially, uh, is important when we begin to talk about this. So how then does that grace wherein we stand transform us from complaining and, and being frustrated um, all those things that Brother Robert talked about when he was talking about that, I said, man, that goes right in with what I'm going to talk about today. So many times we do get frustrated, we get a critical spirit, but grace can open our eyes to the heart and our hearts to the truth uh, and incline our heart to embrace the truth and live by it that we stand in grace and that these things are for God's glory and for our good. So as we think about that, we're going to begin to unpack uh, what he says here um, he says patience, experience, and hope. So we're going to move on to our next point is patience, experience, and hope. So he's going to begin to unpack it. How can we glory in tribulations? Well, it's because tribulations produce patience, produces experience, produces hope. That's, that's the, the formula that Paul says. So let's go on and read in verse 4 of our text. He says, and patience, well, go back and get the end of verse 3 first. It's kind of part of this formula. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. So tribulation brings about patience. That's a difficult lesson to learn, isn't it? That's, that's, not, a, uh, that's not something that we uh, love. You know, did you know that children don't come with that from the factory? It doesn't work that way. <laughs> we have to teach them patience they want what they want right now if you don't believe that just go be around a hungry baby for a minute uh, do they have patience do they say you know what i hadn't had a bottle in a few hours but i'll just be patient and i'll wait on my mom to bring that to me no that's not that's not at all what happens they get very upset so patience is not natural to us but it says tribulation brings about it it produces in us patience Another word for patience there, and this is a controversial word, is perseverance or endurance. It's not really a controversial word. That's a joke. It's not controversial at all. But that, that's another word that you could substitute in there for patience, perseverance or endurance. Some of the other translations use those two words, perseverance. It produces in us patience or perseverance or endurance. If something happens in your life that's hard and painful and frustrating or, or disappointing, by grace, your faith looks to Christ and His power and His sufficiency and His fellowship, and you don't give in to bitterness and resentment and complaining. And then because of that, your faith endures, your faith perseveres, your faith builds patience. It becomes stronger. It, it's stronger in the way that uh, just like if, if, you're gonna, if you ever heard of tempered steel, what that means is that steel has been put through the furnace it's been fired, it's been uh, put through test, it's, it's been made stronger by the fire that tempers it. And so our faith is very much the same way. Tribulation, that, that fire that we go through, brings about a stronger product uh, on the other side, like tempered steel. Uh, tribulation brings about perseverance. He means that those, those fiery trials that you go through are meant to make your faith stronger on the other side. So tribulation brings about patience think about it for those of you who are a little bit further down the road do you react to things the same way in your life now as a christian now that you've been a believer for whatever it is 10 20 30 40 there's probably 50 i don't know i'm not going to embarrass anybody and go any higher than that but some of you have been following jesus for a long time do you react to tribulations in the same way now in your life that you did when you were a new believer i hope not i hope that over time you've seen Christ was with me through that trial. I turned to Christ. He, he was there. He did not fail me. His faithfulness becomes more and more real to me because I see it over and over and over again in my life. And so because of tribulations that we continually go through, it builds a patience in us uh, that we don't react. We don't uh, just, you know, at the drop of a hat, 
uh, make a bad decision. We have, we have a steadiness and a patience and a, and a perseverance through trials because of experience. Now, that's exactly what he's going to bring up next. Patience, and we're, remember we're unpacking this formula here. He says next that patience, experience, it, it, it makes experience. So what does that mean? The translation of experience fits in this context. It really does. Uh, but to me, it really doesn't do full justice to the whole concept of that word. Patience brings about experience. Well, that, that is true, but patience and experience are very closely related, and this is really talking about kind of a whole nother step. Uh, the word there is docime, docime, and it really means tried character, tried character, a proving trial, tried character, or a specimen of tried worth, especially alluding to character. <coughs> so that's out of Vine's dictionary. The idea is that when you put metal through a fiery testing and it comes out on the other side, um, enduring, uh, you would call that proven, authentic, or genuine. It's you go through tribulation and your faith is tested and it perseveres and what you get is a sense of authenticity that that faith is real. It has stood the test and therefore is real, authentic, proven, or uh, genuine. So because of that, that experience, uh, proven character, we, uh, that, I think that's really the best, probably the best translation is proven character. Um, isn't the answer when your faith has been tried in affliction and persevered and, and thus proven genuine and authentic and, and you know that it's real and not fake as a Christian, uh, that that would, that would give you hope. And that's going to be the very next step. So this, this brings about in us um, something that we can count on, I guess is another way to say it. When I say prove, we don't use that word a whole lot. But it's something, there's a, there's a commercial on TV, and I'm, I'm going to be honest, I don't even know what it's about. I think it's about some kind of side-by-sides or four-wheelers or something. It's tested, tried, and true or something like that. Um, and they got this guy talking about, hey, you can trust this product because it's tested, tried, and true. It, its character is proven. Its, its quality is proven. It's something that can be counted on. Well, that's really the idea of that word when it says patience um, brings experience, and then experience brings hope. So because we've been through some things in our life, we then know that this is a proven character. It is, a, it is something that uh, has experience, and our experience, therefore, then uh, gives us confidence in it. And then next, he says that that experience or that proven character brings about hope. And I told you we'd get back to hope. And so we are back now to talk about that hope that he mentioned earlier in the passage. We exult in our tribulations. We glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about patience, patience, experience, and experience or proven character, hope. So now how is that? How does it bring about hope in our life? Well, you know, in one of the great obstacles to a full and a strong hope in the glory of God is the fear that maybe our faith isn't what we thought it was. You ever thought that? You ever had that doubt? Well, maybe my faith isn't real. Maybe, maybe I'm deceived. Maybe I think that, that I have faith and I really don't. Have you ever had those kinds of doubts? Well, if you're having those kinds of doubt, your hope is not very strong, right? But if you've been through trials and that faith has been tested and over and over again it's been shown that God is faithful and that that faith that he has given you is real and you see that time and time and time again, then that hope is increased because then uh, because, because of that testing of our faith and, he show, and it shows to be real and authentic and genuine and proven uh, that will give way uh, in us to a hope that we really will inherit the glory of God and not come to judgment. <coughs> now, um, that is, that's really kind of a, a difficult concept for us to understand because uh, I think that is, that's not something we ever make it in. So this is not something where he says, hey, you're going to go through a certain number of trials and then, man, you're going to have a confidence that can be unshaken. It's not that way at all. But it's an experiential thing that the more trials you go through and you look to Christ 
and crisis seem to be faithful and our faith increases, this is, is, is a process that continues to grow and grow and grow in the believer and our hope becomes stronger and stronger. But I will tell you this, there's a lot, especially among the primitive Baptists, who like to say that like, well, I have a hope, but it would be wrong for me to say that I'm certain. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. We can be certain. Uh, we can have a certainty of our hope in Jesus Christ. Uh, that is not, you know, it's almost like a false humility. Uh, well, oh, anybody that would say that is arrogant. No, we're not talking about us, but uh, we are confident because of what Christ has done for us. So it is okay for us to have confidence and, and I believe uh, that a mature Christian should be confident in their hope of eternal glory. So then there just remains one more little aspect of this um, as we are unpacking this formula here that he says. And then he says at the very end, And hope maketh not ashamed, in verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed. So the hope that is inspired by experience, that is brought about through tribulations, maketh not ashamed the esv says it this way hope does not put us to shame because god's love has been poured into our hearts so hope does not put us to shame if you are a believer god is working in you to cultivate an assurance that you are going to inherit the glory of god when that when you are going to go to heaven when you die would be another way to say that you're going to be a part of christ's uh, kingdom and live forever in the new heavens and the new earth uh, with no more afflictions, no more uh, of these trials and tribulations, that the truth um, of verse 5 is that God does give us that assurance through the Holy Spirit, and we will not be ashamed. This is something that you can count on. When he says that uh, in that way, uh, we don't talk like that a whole lot anymore, but hope maketh not ashamed. Basically what he's saying there, this, this hope that you have, it's not going to let you down. Uh, it's not ever going to be something that you're going to look back on and say, man, I really thought that was it, but it wasn't. Um, too many times in our life, the things that we try to count on are that way. They can make us ashamed. But in, in Christ, we have an assurance that will not make us ashamed. And Paul knows that uh, one of the enemies to our assurance is the fear that we might be, you know, hypocrites or fake Christians or, or not even a Christian at all. Or like we said before, even though... Uh, we go to church and, and we belong to the church and we've made a profession of faith and been baptized and all of these things. He says that as you go through afflictions, that becomes more and more real and your assurance becomes stronger and stronger. He graciously, God graciously takes us through trials so that our faith will be genuine. We will have hope uh, because we see that we are, it is not fake, that it is real in our life. Now, the last thing we're going to cover, and I'll this will be kind of by way of closing, so we'll begin to close, is the love of God in verse 5. So hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Besides this enemy to our assurance that is a fear of not being genuine, a fear of being a hypocrite, a fear that our faith is not real, Another enemy to that assurance might be that what if the object of our faith is false? What if my faith is real, but maybe I've placed my faith in the wrong place? What if we make it through tribulation and, and, and all of those things and grow in hope, but in the end, that hope that we have built everything on ends up to be built on sand? We thought that God loved us, but it turns out that God didn't love us. Maybe God doesn't even exist um, that's, that's a big obstacle to our assurance. But for the believer, Paul's answer to that here is that uh, the love of God is just not something that we blindly attest to. It is something that we experience. It's an experience. There are, there are arguments to be made, and Paul could do that, but he chooses not to do that here. Instead, he just says this, the genuineness of your proven faith will not disappoint you, and you can know this, because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and has poured the love of God into your heart. Isn't that an amazing thing? He's poured it. He didn't say he sprinkled a little bit of the love of God in your heart. Or he gave you just a little bit of a taste of it. Or he trickled some down into your heart. The love of God experientially is poured into your heart 
by the Holy Spirit. So that's not an argument. That's a personal experience of Paul that Paul is sharing with you. And he says that's how you guard against that for your assurance, is that that love of God that you feel in your heart is real. And it's put there, placed there, poured into the heart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us and dwells in us, reassuring us of the love of God and pointing us again and again and again and again to Jesus Christ. That love of God that he pours into our heart, it points us back to Christ again and again and again. And so then that object of our faith, which is Christ, that object of our faith does not fail. We know then uh, that our faith is placed in the right place. Uh, for those who haven't been there on Wednesday, Wednesday night um, yet, uh, one of our studies on the Holy Spirit, this is what we're going to be going through in that study about the Holy Spirit. When he says here uh, that because love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, whose work is that? He says, by the Holy Ghost. It is the Holy Spirit's work that he sheds abroad in our hearts the love of the Father and the love of the Son, which is given unto us. And that, that's talking about the Holy Spirit himself, not just the love. The love's given to us too. But when he says here that it's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us, the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the only reason that you're a believer in Jesus Christ is because the Holy Spirit's been given to you. The Holy Spirit has come in. He's poured out the love of God in your heart. He has changed your heart uh, into from that heart of stone to that heart of flesh that now can understand the things of God. And he's also teaching. He is conforming. He's doing so many things. And so on Wednesday night, what we're going to be looking at is when we said the person and work of the Holy, Holy Spirit, we're not just looking at who the Holy Spirit is. That's kind of what we focused on this Wednesday. But then we're going to begin to unpack what is it that the Holy Spirit does. And this is one of those texts. He spreads abroad. He pours into our hearts. He sheds abroad in our hearts uh, the love of God. He just pours into it. So may we continue to rejoice in the many blessings that we have now and that we look forward to in the future as a result of our justification. There's much, much, much for us to be thankful for in all that God has done with us in the person and work of Jesus Christ.